Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, especially to all the moms with us. And um, if we don't take the opportunity to some other time, can, um, can everyone who has a mom just give a clap right now? Thanks. Thank you, moms. I think about my mom today. Oh, boy. I'm going to crib a little bit today. Our reading today is Luke chapter 16, uh, verses 18 through 31. Uh, pardon me, 19 through 31. In your Pew Bible, if you're following along in the Pew Bible, page 1036. 1036. And um, this is the parable, uh, another parable. We're almost done with parables. I hope you've enjoyed the parable series here. It's sort of an unofficial parable series. I've enjoyed it a lot. Uh, and the Bible's not only parables, so we'll get to other things eventually, but uh, this has been really enjoyable with the parables. So thanks for, for uh, sticking with it. This is a parable called the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's full of details. So we're going to look at the detail. It's going to be a little different today. We're going to kind of go through it verse by verse a little later. Just a few words of introduction, though, before we begin with this parable. I want to say something about names and naming in the Bible. Very interesting. Names, in, especially in the Old Testament, had a lot of meaning. Um, our names have meaning, but we've kind of lost track of the meaning of our names. We don't really think about them as much. But back then, your name really was important. Your name was often who you related to, what town you were from, or your name would be something related to some event that happened right around your birth, say a comet was going by or something like that. Um, so names were descriptive. They gave you identity in a way that names now don't quite give us identity. Names were important. God named people. God also renamed people. Several people in the Bible we find that God gave new names to. Abram and Sarai became Abraham and Sarah. Jacob became Israel. Saul became Paul. Um, some people give themselves new names. Um, Naomi renamed herself Mara, which means bitterness, because she was bitter at the loss of her son and her, her sons and her husband. Um, when Adam and Eve, one of the first things they did was give names to all the animals. And naming is a form of dominion. If you can name somebody else, you have some sort of lordship or dominion over them. And so Adam said, giraffe is a giraffe, and hippo is a hippo. And by naming them, Adam and Eve, the humans, had some dominion and care over the creation, which is how God designed it. God always names himself, but there's one fabulous exception to this, and I invite you to look at it some other time on your own time, the story of Hagar, who's the, the handmaiden or the slave girl, the Egyptian slave girl of Sarah, who uh, has a very intertwined and messy relationship with Abraham and Sarah. It's, it's kind of tragic and sad and who is forced out of that family because uh, of the arrival of Isaac. So Hagar and Ishmael are forced out of Abraham and Sarah's family. And they're out in the wilderness, and they're getting ready to die. And God comes and finds Hagar and has this caring relationship and conversation with Hagar. And the only case of this in the Bible is that Hagar is permitted to give God a name, which is in reverse. She names God El Roy which means the God who sees. And God consents to being named by Hagar, who is somebody who has no power. It's very interesting. Take a look at it on your own. So there's sometimes exceptions to this idea of naming and, and names. 
The last thing I'll say about this introduction, this is where you're wondering where this is going, is there are a lot of people in the Bible who are not given names. They're just, they're, they're no-named people. They're, they're mentioned as people, but their names are not given. So one example we had a few, few weeks back at Easter time was these two disciples were on the road to Emmaus. One of them, we hear their name, Cleopas. The other one, some person. Man, woman, we don't know. Is it Cleopas' wife? We don't know. It's an unnamed person in Scripture. In the Old Testament, some people who have great violence done to them are not given names. And sometimes that's on purpose as if to underscore in sort of a literary way that they're, they're nameless and they're powerless and they don't belong and so that they're subject to, to violence. Very interesting. Um, Almost without fail, nobody in Jesus' parables have names. And we don't think about this that often. We think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. He doesn't have a name. Not Bob or Bill or anything. Um, the the, the uh, person that the Good Samaritan helps doesn't have a name. The people who walk by don't have names. The robber who attacks him doesn't have names. No names. And that, that kind of makes sense in the parables. The, the, the lost son doesn't have a name. The prodigal son doesn't have a name. The older brother doesn't have a name. In, in a parable, that makes sense because you're kind of supposed to put your name into the parables at times. When there's an unnamed person in the parable, it leaves open the possibility, that lack of specificity, that that could be you. So you pay attention. Oh, who could that be? Today, we have a parable in which two people are named. One is Lazarus. Not the Lazarus that Jesus knew. It's a different Lazarus. This is a parable Lazarus. And the other is Abraham, who's kind of specific because of his position in the history of Israel. We're going to get to why it's interesting and important that Lazarus has a name in this parable a little bit later. But with that introduction about naming in, in the Bible, names and naming, let's go to our reading. Luke 16, verse 19, page 1036 in your Bible. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, Send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. 
He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, let's go through this verse by verse. I'm going to sort of bring our attention to some sort of highlighting things that are, I think are interesting and important uh, in this very detailed parable. And then at the end, maybe say a few words to try to wrap it together. First off, in verse 19, we have a rich man. It says he was dressed in purple. This is the color of royalty. You wouldn't dress like this every day unless you were feasting every day. This is somebody who is extremely wealthy. Uh, you couldn't really get this clothing that cheaply. So this was a very wealthy person. He lived in luxury every day. You could read this as he feasted every day. And immediately we find that there's a problem here. If he's feasting every day, that's great for him. Probably not good for his waistline. But it's great for him because all his needs are being taken care of every day. But it also means that if he has servants, which he most likely does, they are to be then preparing him a meal every day and serving it to him every day and cleaning up after it every day. The problem with this is then that he's not giving his servants a Sabbath day's rest. He's violating the law. He's violating Moses and the prophets because he's not giving them the space to rest their bodies, to rest their minds, to commune with God. On the Sabbath, he's feasting just like every other day. And so he's breaking the law and causing other people to break the law. This is a problem. Instantly, people listening would have thought, oh, this is not good. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. And again, we see somebody gets a name in a parable. The first time. And this is very reversed. If somebody's rich and wealthy, it means they're prominent, that their name is worth remembering. You know, uh, but this man has no name. In fact, throughout the years, people have thought that this was unequal, and they've tried to actually give this man a name. Um, and so, in some medieval literature, this man has a name. But the point of this is that he doesn't have a name, but that the lowly person, the beggar by the side of the street, doesn't does have a name. It's a reversal that Jesus loves to do. The first will be last. The last will be first. The prominent is anonymous. And the lowest in society has the honor of having been named by Jesus himself in a parable. Lazarus is covered with sores. Now, you look very closely in verse 20. It says, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. And that tense is properly translated in English. It does not say that a beggar laid himself at the gate. It doesn't say that he walked there and lay down at his gate. It says, was laid in the passive sense, which means that somebody else laid him there. That's what that means. There's a, another anonymous, nameless person in this parable, or a set of persons, and that's the community around Lazarus. What's probably happening here, and people would have understood this, is that Lazarus lives somewhere else. He doesn't live in the street. He lives somewhere else. He's very poor. His friends can't feed him because they don't have the resources to do that. But they, what they can do is they can carry him to the gate of this rich man and lay him there with the hopes that some scraps from the rich man's table will come to him. And likely those scraps came not from the rich man ordering people to give Lazarus some food. Otherwise, he might have invited him in. But the scraps came from these same servants who have to work on the Sabbath, bringing the leftovers out at the end of the day when the feast is over. 
And so there's a community that carries Lazarus to the gate and leaves him there. That's all they can do. That's all they have the resources for. There's these servants who carry food out to Lazarus when the feast is done so Lazarus can live. And then there's another group, if you want to call it in this parable, that takes care of Lazarus. And that's in verse at the end of verse 21. And the word there we have in the NIV is kind of a mistake, I think. It says even as if it was an exception, but it really should be and. And the dogs came and licked his sores. Some interpreters think that this is a bad thing. They think, oh, what an indignity. But others say, no, this is a good thing. The dogs are taking care of Lazarus. He has these open wounds. The dogs licking his wounds is actually a good thing for him. They're caring for him. They're affectionate towards Lazarus. And so we have three people who are being nice, in essence, to Lazarus. The community is bringing him there. The servants are bringing him food. Even the dogs are taking care of Lazarus. But the one person who has the means to do it isn't doing anything except feasting all day long and not noticing that there's a man at his gate who's sick and needs help. So just in, in three verses there, we get this image on earth of a vast difference in wealth, a vast difference in blessing, and the people who have nothing helping somebody else who has nothing, and the person with everything just enjoying it for themselves. Okay, so that's the scene. Then, verse 22, the time came when the beggar died, that's Lazarus, and the angel carried him to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. And so you get this sense again that while in life he's being carried to the gate and food is being carried to him, in death he's being carried up to Abraham. The imagery here is that Lazarus is now at a feast with Abraham. He's at a banquet and he's reclining and he's leaning against Abraham's lap in this feast. He's, he's in Abraham's bosoms. He's we're, we're probably going to buy a beanbag chair pretty soon for our son, George. We're going to order it on Amazon. There's some beautiful beanbag chairs out there. They're really cool. Do you ever have a beanbag chair when you were a kid? They're just so, mmm, just so comfy. So Lazarus is in an Abraham beanbag chair up in heaven. He's just comforted, and he's relaxing, and he's suspended in the lap of Abraham, and his needs are being met. This is a beautiful image of what's going on up there. He's in Abraham's bosom. And, um, yeah, I won't say much more about that. But it, it goes on to say that the rich man also died and was buried. And um, then, you know, this, this escalates very quickly because in verse 23, the first two words are, in hell. <laughs> Where did he go? Well, he went to hell. In hell, the, the word here is Hades, this, this idea of the place of the dead, they really lacked the right, the right words for this. So sometimes the word Hades had to stand in for hell. But it's clear that, as we read later, the rich man is not in the same place as Lazarus is. The rich man is in the place of the dead, and he's in torment, he's in fire, he's in hell. Lazarus must then be in the place of the living. He must be in heaven. The image is Abraham's bosom. The image is that he's reclining at the table and is leaning against Abraham 
on his back and resting and being comforted. So there's this great contrast. Even in life, there was a contrast between what the two had. Now in death, there's an extreme contrast between what the two had. One is burning in hell. The other is in the lap of Abraham and in, in comfort and peace. Now, interestingly, and this is only in the parable, I suspect, it's somehow possible for the rich man who's in hell to see heaven. I think when we, I don't know if that's going to be the case in the afterlife. I'm not sure if people in hell will be able to see heaven. If so, it will really make their torment worse. But this is a parable, so we kind of have to just think, all right, in the parable universe, it's possible for somebody who's burning in hell to see heaven. The image I get as I read this parable is like the Grand Canyon. You know, this giant canyon. On one side, there's these huge cliffs, and say that side is hell, where there's fires, and, and this rich man is standing. And way on the other rim of the Grand Canyon is heaven, and Lazarus is at a feast with Abraham and all sorts of other people. And far in the distance, this man who's in fire can see his, this old friend of his who used to be at his gate, and he can see that he's in paradise. He can see him. Not only that, he can yell really loudly across this great chasm. He can yell loud enough for the people on the other side to hear. And so this is what he says. He yells out, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus over here with a little bit of water because I'm, I'm burning up here. This is more than an Arizona summer. This is flames, all right? This is hell. If you've been to Arizona in the summer, you might, be, you might mistake yourself for being in hell, but you're not. I grew up in Arizona. It's a great place. Now, this rich man has a reality problem. And I think that's what hell is like, really. Hell is a place where reality doesn't work. Hell is a place of unreality. Put it this way. God is the creator of everything in this universe, everything that's real. The only thing that he doesn't create is things that are unreal, our fantasies, our um, misperceptions about the world. He doesn't create those, and so he's not present in those. So God's not present in hell, so unreality must reign in hell. It's a very unreliable place to live. It's not a place you'd really want to be for all sorts of other reasons, but one is that unreality is in charge in hell. Here's the unreality that the man finds himself in. He's in hell, but he's still giving orders. Does that make sense? Giving orders in hell? You do not know where you are if you're doing that. He's in hell and he's calling over to Abraham. Send Lazarus over here. He's used to telling servants, come here, go there, do this, do that, bring me this. Now he's in hell and he's asking Abraham to send Lazarus on an errand to give him some water. That's ridiculous. You don't do that. You don't give orders in hell. This is, this is not what you do, but he's doing it. Send him over here. Let him cool me down. I'm in agony in this fire. Verse 25. Uh, and we need to take a little time on verse 25. Abraham replied, Remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. No doubt. This rich man had riches. He had comfort. Lazarus had, he couldn't walk. He had sores. But he had community, so that was good. But now he is comforted here, Lazarus, and you are in agony. Now, be careful that you don't hear a causation from the first part of this verse to the second part. And what I mean is this. What Jesus is not saying is that 
if you are wealthy in this life, it means you're going to hell in the next life. He's not saying that. Or if you have good things in this life, then you've used up all your good things, and so you're not going to have good things in the next life. It's kind of like a reverse karma thing or how people think about it. Or if you've, had, if you've really suffered in this life, then you're guaranteed to have good things in the next life. There, there's no causation implied between here. He's just describing what happened. This is not a parable about salvation. This is a parable about attention. It's a parable about what this rich man has been paying attention to. The New Testament and the Old Testament alike testify that you're saved by God's work, your faithfulness, and your attentiveness to God. It's not, your salvation doesn't depend on whether you're rich or poor. It doesn't depend on whether um, you've received good things or bad things. It doesn't depend on whether you've suffered or not suffered. It depends on the work of God in your life. So this isn't a parable about salvation and how to get to heaven, although that plays into it. This is a parable about what you pay attention to. So, and then Abraham goes on to explain the mechanics of the Grand Canyon to him, basically. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to grow from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Now, here we should stop ourselves and say, wait, wait, did I hear that right? And I'm going to read it again because you'll catch it then. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, like the Grand Canyon, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot. Who would want to do that? Who would want to do that? Who would want to go from heaven to hell? Why would they do that? If they can see from hell to heaven and you can see from heaven to hell, why would you leave Abraham's lap and go jump in a fire? Why would you do that? It's a crazy question. The only possible answer here, maybe in the parable, is that there was somebody who wanted to do that. And it was Lazarus. Lazarus was saying, oh, he wants some water? I'll take him some water. Abraham says it's not possible. Even if you wanted to, it's not possible. And you get, if, if you can take that and you get the sense that Lazarus is so at peace in heaven, he's so at peace in Abraham's lap, that he's even willing to go and help somebody who never helped him, the same person. Heaven is this place of such peace that you forget all the wrongs ever done to you and you're ready and willing to even reach out to somebody who was part of your torment in life. Heaven is even possible on earth if you're willing to get to that point, if you can have that kind of peace. But anyways, it doesn't matter because Lazarus can't go. He can't make the trip. It's impossible. The chasm's too big. And uh, it's also impossible to go from heaven to hell, says Abraham. It just won't work. And again, this isn't a parable about salvation or about hell per se, but it does say something interesting about this chasm. Is that once you're on one side of it or the other, you're stuck there. It's too late. There's a point in time at which the master returns from the wedding feast. There's a point in time at which the landowner asks for an accounting of all the books. And at that point, it is now too late to switch streams. You're either in one camp or the other, and there's no going back and forth. It's a warning, something to be aware of. Okay, so he can't go. He can't cross over. He can't bring me any water. Verse 27, I beg you, Father, he's again 
uh, continuing to give orders from hell, which makes no sense. Please send Lazarus as an errand boy or as a messenger. Please send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, and let him warn them. And again, this rich man's self-centeredness is kind of coming through. He's not saying, send Lazarus to the whole community around my house. Send Lazarus to the executor of my estate to share my wealth with all the poor people in the neighborhood. He doesn't say that. Send Lazarus to my family, to my brothers, because I care about my tribe, my clan. Send Lazarus to my brothers so that they don't end up in this place. I don't want them. At least he cares about his brothers, but his care does not extend beyond his own small, immediate family. It's a problem for this old man. I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not come to this place of torment. But Abraham replied, They have enough. They have Moses, which is the law. They have the prophets, which is God speaking into his community about the need for compassion to the poor and and everyone else who doesn't have enough. They have enough in the scriptures to avoid the place where you are right now. They have enough. In fact, we all have enough, don't we? We have the word. And uh, that's not enough. He says, oh, that's not enough, Abraham. Uh, He's probably thinking, I don't think my brothers read the Bible. I don't think my brothers know this stuff. I I know I never did. It's probably what he's thinking. I never read the Bible. I mean, I knew that stuff, but I I didn't act on it. I made my servants work on the Sabbath. So he says, no, Father Abraham, but if you send someone from the dead, then they will repent. They will turn. They will turn, turn around and reform their ways. And uh, that will get their attention. That will be like pretty amazing. But again, Abraham says, I beg to differ. Actually, if they can't pay attention to Moses and the prophets, they won't have any way to pay attention to somebody coming, even somebody coming back from the dead, which is a great miracle, the greatest miracle of all. If you're not even in tune with God's word, you will not be able to see God's greatest miracle. Jesus is now speaking prophetically into the community that he's in now. He's saying, in essence, that some people who've seen all of his miracles and know all the prophecies about the Messiah and all that is going to come true, and they still won't believe, and then he's going to pull off the greatest miracle that the world has ever seen, which is come back from the dead, from his own crucifixion, and be visible to thousands of people. And even after that, there will be many who will not believe. And that's the reality. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Wow, a lot of detail in there, and there's even some details that we weren't able to go into. Is that interesting? Is that an interesting parable? There's a whole lot packed into this little parable. So I want to I bring up a few things. Again, that this is not, there's not a the- theology of salvation only in this parable, but it's about attention. It's about what are you noticing? This man, the rich man, did not notice Lazarus at his gate. Everybody else did. The community did. His servants did. The dogs even noticed Lazarus. But this rich man didn't. He only noticed Lazarus when it was too late, when he needed something from Lazarus, when it was about his own needs. And um, there's this chasm that I, I think is important. 
this chasm between heaven and hell that Abraham talks about. Think of it like the Grand Canyon. But I think there's a much bigger chasm than that. It's the chasm that leads to this chasm. And that chasm is the distance between this man's front door and his front gate. It's the distance between wealth and somebody else's need. It's the distance between the sphere of attention that I give to my immediate surroundings and that thing that God really wants me to notice. That is the great chasm. That is the chasm that Abraham says, it's so large, you may not be able to cross over it. There was a man who came to Jesus. We read about this in Luke 18. He says, good master, what must I do? Jesus says, well, what have you learned? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I've done all those things since my birth. Great, Jesus says. One thing is left. Sell everything you have, everything that gives you security, and give it to the poor. Get rid of it. And then come follow me so that you can depend on me completely and not your wealth. It says the man went, and there's another nameless person in the Bible. He has no name. The man went away very sad because he had great wealth. There was too much for him to give up to trust Jesus. He walked away, and then Jesus talked about him after he left, and he said this to his disciples. He says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Bad news for all of us in America because even if you think you're poor in America, you're like super rich compared to other people in this world. It'd be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples say, well, then how can anyone get in? How is it possible that anyone could be saved? Jesus says, With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. There's just giant chasm and a chasm of attention between us focusing on our own needs and wealth could be just one of those things, us looking at our own wealth or us looking at our own life. And the thing that God wants us to truly pay attention to, the Lazarus in our life. And it doesn't have to be an actual person. It could be something that God is trying to get our attention for, something that God wants to show us, something that Moses and the prophets is enough to get us to, something that a man coming back from the dead would make us aware of if we were to listen. If we live into the reality of the resurrection and open ourselves to it, By God's power, we'll begin to see and pay attention to what God wants us to pay attention to. This is the difference in this parable. If the man had, the man didn't go to hell because he was rich. He didn't go to hell because he broke the law about the Sabbath, making his servants work on the Sabbath. He didn't go to hell because he was immoral for any other reasons we can find. He he was not able to participate in the the new life with Abraham because he could not pay attention to God. He could only pay attention to what he had.
He was not aware of what was going on in his community. He was not aware, even open enough, to the law and the prophets. And if a man had come back from the dead, he would not have been aware of it either. I think the question for us is, who is the Lazarus in your life? Who's being carried by everybody else but God wants you to carry? Who's at our front gate and we don't notice? That's for us individually, but I think we can ask this question as a church too. What's the chasm between the front door of our church and our community? Is it a wide chasm that we can barely cross? What do we do with people who get carried or carry themselves to the front door of the church What are we doing to bring them in to share this feast with us? That's a great question for us. A few weeks back, we had a Veritas seminar with Alan Forsman, and he said something really challenging. He said, a church that's on a pathway to vitality at some point in its life has to engage with the community in such a meaningful way that if the church closed its doors for some reason, the community would say, Oh, we miss them. If the community would not even notice that the church closed its doors, then the church had not had just failed in its attempt to pay attention to the community around it. And part of our work as a church that wants to grow in vitality is to discern what are the needs in our community around here? Who are the Lazaruses, Lazaruses around us? And I have to be quite honest with you. I think I'm really terrible at figuring that out. I am not good at that. I think about it sometimes, and I just don't know where to go. Because there's so many people around us, just even the neighbors across the street, the high school kids, the kids at the the school here. There's so many people around us. Everybody has different needs. There's no way we could meet all the needs of every person in our community. We'd have to pick something. And I just don't know where to start. It seems like such a big hill to start climbing. And it is, unless we remember. With us, this is impossible to figure this out. But with God, it is possible. I want to encourage us to pray for attention. Pray for the attentiveness that God would give us so that we can see what's just on the other side of that door right there. And not just see, but then to invite in and to go out and serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come before you and we pray for attention and attentiveness to your coming that we're prepared, but attentiveness to those in our community who need you and need what you have given us in abundance that we might share it. Open our eyes as we walk in this community, as we drive through it, as we pray and meditate over it, as we seek your will as a body together. Open our eyes to what you would have us see. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.